All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of On Marriage and Family Life, homilies of John Chrysostom. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All we have left of homily 21 is about a full page of text. We left off on page 71 in your Chrysostom book. And, of course, this is homily 21, looking at the relationship between parents and children, a relatively short homily. And the majority of this book is, is devoted to uh, marriage, but we do here have parents and children, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, which we read last week, and we'll simply finish up uh, this week. So, page 71, the uh, paragraph that begins right in the middle of the page, Chrysostom writes, Therefore, wealth is a hindrance, because it leaves us unprepared for the hardships of life. So let us raise our children in such a way that they can face any trouble and not be surprised when difficulties come. Let us bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Great will be the reward in store for us. For if artists who make statues and paint portraits of kings are held in high esteem, will not God bless 10,000 times more those who reveal who reveal and beautify his royal image, for man is the image of God. Yeah, a beautiful way of looking at what it means to be a parent. You get to shape and form these creatures who are made in the image of God and raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and it is an everlasting work that you participate in. You know, whatever you do here in this life is... It's going to be lost, subject to loss. And here, uh, what we have in, in how we shape and form one another, especially Chrysostom has in mind the vocation of parents to children, uh, has the potential to last for all eternity. So this is fantastic. He continues, When we teach our children to be good, to be gentle, to be forgiving, all these are attributes of God. To be generous, to love their fellow men, to regard this present age as nothing, we instill virtue in their souls and reveal the image of God within them. That is a beautiful way of putting it, to reveal the image of God within them. Uh, we, can talk, we can talk rather technically about the image of God and whether or not we have it. And really, as long as we, as long as we get things sorted out and speak clearly, uh, we have no problem. On, on one hand, we could talk about the image of God as the righteousness of God. That is, to be made in God's image is to be like God uh, in accord with righteousness. And then ever since the fall, we have had a breach in that. And so in this, in this mode of speaking, it, it, it's most accurate to say we've lost the image of God. And you will find the Lutheran Confession speak this way. Um, 
this is maybe the clearest way to speak. I, I, obviously, the scriptures speak this way, but we have lost the image of God. We have lost our original righteousness. We have lost that unity between the will of our maker and our wills as, as his creatures. Okay? But what other way can we conceive of the image of God and talk about it as though we might still have it? Here we can look at the essence of what it is to be a human being. We can say, is, is it by definition, by definition sinful to be man? Well, you can't say that without falling into Manichaean heresy and without ultimately denying the atonement because God becomes man in Christ Jesus. So there's nothing inherently sinful about becoming man. So one can then see, and of course the Lutheran reformers have to articulate this very carefully um, against Flacius, uh, that, that while entirely corrupted by sin, the human nature created by God remains. And that in and of itself is good. So if we want to define that as the image of God, then we can see that the image of God abides and remains in this way of defining it. Abides and remains. It's synonymous with our humanity. And simply sin covers that, taints that, corrupts that through and through, I mean entirely. Um, but in such a way, in such a way that Christ can remove that sin from us, thus revealing the image of God within us and maturing and perfecting that image of God until it comes to its completion. When we are raised in our bodies in the new heavens and the new earth with our souls in full maturity, conformed into the image of Christ, each one of us uniquely in our own way and yet uh, conformed into the image of, of the one God-man, uh, this then is when we can say he has he has not only uncovered the, uh, unco like taken away the sin and uncovered the image of God within us, but that he has brought that, let us, that phrase, let us make man in our image, he has brought that work to its final telos and completion. Okay. So, um, yeah, so we've got no problem as Lutherans with this language here of Christendom. In fact, I think it's a beautiful way of speaking. Um, any thoughts, any questions, any comments on that point? Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> which part, so the question is, we would call that sanctification. Which, which part um, are you referring to? The whole process? Or? Well, yeah, the process of us being stripped back and, and slowly um, becoming what God wants us to be. Or yeah, we could, we could certainly call that process of um, maturation. Um, putting to death the old Adam in us, being the new man in us being raised to new life, for example. Those, those ways of speaking we could call sanctification. Uh, sanctification is just one of those words that um, can be used in any number of ways. Yeah. Sanctification can be used in a forensic sense and in, a, in a just a sort of flat sense of um, to be declared holy. I mean, to be made holy, okay, is to be sanctified, but how, does, how can God make us holy? Simply by declaring us to be holy. Now you have a forensic usage of sanctification. Sanctification can take on, just the word, can take on a holistic sense. 
to be, to be justified by grace through faith apart from any works, and then also, though, to be conformed in our works into the image of, of Christ. Uh, so there's a holistic way in which sanctification is used. And then sanctification can be used in a narrow way where we, where we sort of oppose it or contrast it um, to justification. We talk about justification having nothing to do with works and then sanctification being the fruit of that justification. So we can define sanctification all these different ways. There's probably other ways we could articulate it. The point is, the point is that however we're articulating a definition, however we're using that word, we want to use it in keeping with what the rest of the scriptures say. And then we can be sure not to, not to go astray on this one. So the same thing, the same thing can be said of, of what we just used. And all of theology is like this. You have to define your terms. Yeah. I th you know, you can, Lutherans, Lutherans can go right along with the fact that there's seven sacraments. How do you define a sacrament? Right? If, it's a, if it's a mystery, if it's something God gives that's through his word that's beyond human understanding, yeah, there's easily seven. Sure, sure. Maybe there's more. <laughs> um, but if you define a sacrament more narrowly as, you know, kind of in an Augustinian way, as a, a word of God, a sign, and grace attached to that. It's, it becomes a means, an instrument of the Holy Spirit, a means, an instrument of God's grace. Well, then properly speaking, you're at two. So it really just depends on how you define it. The image of God is the same way. If you define it as, as original righteousness, we don't have it. If you define it as original humanity, that even though sin completely corrupts and taints, sin could be removed and it's still there, well then we do have it. So it just all comes down to these definitions, and sanctification is much like that. I, so is repentance. We, you know, there's, there's a wide sense of repentance, a narrow sense of repentance. There's a passive sense of repentance and an active sense of repentance. Faith has the same parameters. There's one faith. There's not many faiths. There's one faith, and yet there's a passive aspect of faith and an active aspect of faith. And this is where so many of our controversies arise is an inability or an unwillingness to define terms, sort out what's what, and actually see if there's a material disagreement, and to stop using, um, to stop using language uh, equivocally, too, because there are people who very much have a different theology than Lutherans, but they want to be called Lutherans, and they want to use the language of Lutherans, and so they equivocate, and they try to use the same language that we use. They just radically redefine what those terms are and what the, what the nature of those terms are. And you know, that, once that gets fetched out, that's really fr frustrating, because you're not dealing with an honest person, with an honest disagreement, with an honest theology that just says, yeah, we're at odds with you. So. Okay, yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, you know, then they're, they're autonomous, they're, they're separate from them. So, mm. could you comment on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, tend to, I tend to see it maybe not as a both and. I, um, so, so, the way that God gives the parental office. He gives instruction, for example, here in the Ephesians text, that we raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He doesn't exactly specify what that is. He doesn't say that that means exactly 22 minutes every morning 
and you know, seven minutes in the evening. There's, there's no specificity there. On the one hand, we, we do have a responsibility as parents to raise our children in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And on the, and the others, and, and so we don't want to shirk that responsibility. And if we've neglected that duty and our, and our children go afoul and apostatize and everything else, well, we rightly should kick ourselves and plead for God's mercy and all of that. But that so that's a, that's a part of it. I don't deny it. Um, but the other part of that is that God doesn't really specify. And he certainly puts the salvation of souls in his own hands. The mark of a pastor is not how many souls he gets into heaven, but whether or not he preached and ministered the sacraments faithfully. God doesn't say, okay, let's, let's check out your talent. How many, did, you know, how many did you save here? I mean, the answer would be like, how many, how many people did you save, pastor? Zero. Christ saved them all. Well, how many people did you convert? Zero. The Holy Spirit converted them all. So what credit are we going to take? And I would say that by, then by comparison, the same thing goes with parents. We don't save our children. I mean, it's true that we can, you know, we could con- contribute to their downfall, contribute to their apostasy, and we should not do that. We should be very fearful of that, and we should repent if we have done that, and receive absolution if we've done that, and and move forward. But as as parents, I think that there's this sense in which God wants us to just simply do a duty, and that duty is to be Christian and raise Christians. Obviously, we're not going to do it perfectly. And obviously, the scriptures, prescriptively, in terms of what they prescribe parents to do, is quite general. Quite general. Yeah, take your kids to church. Pray in the house. Be a Christian. You know, that, that's the kind of, make sure your children are getting this. Instruct them. Luther would say, you know, teach them the small catechism. So there, we can flesh that duty out. But then that's at the heart of vocation too. And this is maybe why I primarily look at it this way is uh, every, every single human being has a primary relationship to God. Right? And vocation just sort of fleshes out those relationships we have with one another. And so, so all, of, all of my life as an, as an individual, I'm accountable to God, and then all of my life is like based on these different relationships or offices I have with other people. So my children, I have an office, you know, I have an office to treat them in a way that I wouldn't treat my spouse. <laughs> I have an office to treat my spouse in a way that I wouldn't treat other women, right? <laughs> so... We have, a, we have these defined roles and the parameters and the identity of those roles that we're allowed to play one for another, but we can't, we can't lose track of the fact that they're still roles, that God, has a, God can use the entire world, any, any human being he wants in whatever role he wants unto an individual. So he gives, he gives us these roles and vocations, and what is, our, what is our responsibility one to another? Well, we're trying, we're trying to help our neighbor get, be closer to God and get into heaven. I mean... That's one way of putting it, right? To, to realize the fullness of who God is in Christ Jesus and what he's done for each one of us, to dwell in that grace, in that strength, and, and to spread that word around unto others. I mean, that's really what we're doing here. So, that, so then that takes a shape in the parent-child relationship. 
It takes a different shape in the husband-wife relationship or the spouse-spouse relationship. It takes a different shape if one's a child dealing with his own parents. It takes a different shape if, if it's employer-employee. It takes a different shape if uh, there's, there's not any of those three relationships, you know. So I don't know, Barry, I'm not, I'm not trying to be evasive on that point. I, I am saying this, the simple way that I look at it primarily is vocation. I've got two kiddos. I'm doing everything within my power. I can, hindered by my sin, by the world, and by the, the devil, to get them into heaven. Ultimately, is that my call? Nope. Is that, is that ultimately even my responsibility? Nope. I have a responsibility to, f to be faithful in my vocation, not a responsibility for what the end product looks like. Yeah. I think about this all the time as a pastor. I have a, I have a duty. I mean, I want to get a, a, everyone in heaven. <laughs> okay? But that's not, that really can't, I mean, my goal has to be, Jesus doesn't say, get everyone in your congregation into heaven and I will give you eternal life. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you eternal life. So my vo the parameters of my vocation are, Am I preaching the gospel rightly? Am I administering the sacraments rightly? If, if people don't get into heaven, then like, that's, that's sort of like outside of the purview of, of my office. I've conducted my office with integrity. I think we want to have the same goal as parents. Like, hey, I've, I've raised my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If, if they have rejected that, that's like outside of, my, outside of the bounds of my jurisdiction, my vocational jurisdiction. So that's kind of our goal. Okay, well, thanks for that. I'm sorry that was so wordy. All right, we left off on page 71, six lines from the bottom. Chrysostom continues, This then is our task, to educate both ourselves and our children in godliness. Otherwise, what answer will we have before Christ's judgment seat? Yeah, and see, there's the responsibility aspect I was bringing up. If a man with unruly children is unworthy to be a bishop, this is a reference to Titus 1.6, that if a man doesn't have his own household in order, then how can he, you know, his own children in obedience, then how can he, you know, lead the household of God? So if a man with unruly children is unworthy to be a bishop, how can he be worthy of the kingdom of heaven? What do you think? If we have an undisciplined wife or unruly children, Shall we not have to render an account for them? Yes, we shall, if we cannot offer to God what we owe Him, because we can't be saved through individual righteousness alone. If the man who buried his one talent gained nothing but was punished instead, it is obvious that one's own virtue is not enough for salvation, but the virtue of those for whom we are responsible is also required. Now, I would put a giant asterisk here and say, uh, yeah, this is kind of leaning a little towards a meritorious and works righteousness kind of deal. There's not a clear distinction between law and gospel being made here. Uh, I mean, just quite objectively, if I didn't know this was Chrysostom and I just, somebody told me, hey, this is, a, this is a seminarian and he's written this, what do you think? I would say, yeah, you probably want to rewrite that. Uh, it's, it lends itself to confusion. Do we get into heaven by faithfully fulfilling our vocation and our vocation unto others? No, we get into heaven by the blood of Christ. Okay. And I wish that he had made that a little more clear here. 
All right, he continues, Therefore, let us be greatly concerned for our wives and our children, and for ourselves as well. And as we educate both ourselves and them, let us beg God to help us in our task. If he sees that we care about this, he will help us. But if we are unconcerned, he will not give us his hand. God helps those who work, not those who are idle. No one helps an inactive person, but one who joins in the labor. The good God himself will bring this work to perfection, so that all of us may be counted worthy of the blessings he has promised through the grace and love for mankind of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, with whom, together with the Holy Spirit, be glory, honor, and power to the Father now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. All right. Well, what, what, might, we, uh, what might be one of the take-home points here? Um, I, think, I think this particularly viewed at husbands, this is a bitter pill to swallow, but we may as well swallow it. Uh, if, if the scriptures give us headship, and we have headship, um, headship isn't even a thing you have to, in this sense, it's not even a thing you have to aspire towards. Like, you have it. The question is, have you, have you used it? Or have you used it rightly? Or have you used it poorly? Or have you neglected it? But you have it. It's not like you have to fight for headship. It's already yours. And what, I think what many of us as, uh, as husbands, as fathers need to do is take full responsibility of, of whatever it is that's going on. It's very painful. Very painful. Because it's so much easier to point the finger. Well, my wife this. Well, my children that. You say, well... I mean, this is Chrysostom's logic here. Well, if, you're, if your wife this, are you not her head? If your children that, are you not the one who rules over them? So are you not ultimately, or at least in some sense, responsible for the state of your household? And, and this organically, in terms of the people themselves, the family unit. Um, husband and wife, the two as one flesh, and the children as, as embodiments of that one flesh. Uh, if things have gone awry in the household, the very first place a husband, the head of that unit, ought to look is in the mirror and um, confess his sins to God, be absolved in the blood of Christ, which indeed cleanses us of all our sins, and then go towards setting things, setting things right. I think the way you would set things right in your own body, you know, if you had if you, had let your, if you had let your body go and um, you were eating too much, drinking too much, smoking too much, not exercising, not doing anything right, how would you treat yourself? You know, firmly, right? But gently, step by step. You know, you're not going to say, that's it, fat body. Time for, a, uh, time for a marathon right now. You've brought this on yourself. Okay? No, you would say, okay, Baby steps. <laughs> let's, let's set out a diet. Let's set out a workout plan. Let's get things in right order and let's do this progressively in such a way that we're going to accomplish our goal. Let's be gentle with ourselves while being firm with ourselves as we move forward. And I think that that's precisely the paradigm that Chrysostom would point us to as, as heads of our families then in, in setting things right in our home. Like, it's going to take time, be firm, but gentle, etc. Okay, I see hands waving desperately in the background. Um, May I, just, may I just say one more comment before I let go and before I forget? You know, it is, it is, the, um, 
It is the blood of Christ and it is the perfect atonement of Christ that sets us free to even engage in these things. If we didn't have that, engaging in these things would be so terrifying, I, I would rather just go sit at the beach or go fishing in the mountains. Because why would, I want, why would I want to look in this mirror and see all the ways in which I've failed and the people around me have failed? And why, why would I want to wallow in the misery of my own sins and failures? Um, but, as, as just said, because the atonement of Christ is perfect and because his blood does indeed cleanse us from all our sins, we can move forward without condemnation, knowing there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And we can, we can own up to our faults, confess them, be forgiven, and we can move forward then in terms of our own families and in terms of the, our neighbors' families, helping one another, lifting up one another, um, trying to uh, build in our lives what God would have for us. Okay, with that aside, um, I, think, I think your hand was first and then, and then over here. Yeah, I think, that that's, I think that that just straight up as it reads in the English, I didn't go back to the original or anything, straight up as that reads in the English, it reads wrong. It reads like a meritorious and maybe even sort of a corporate or familial salvation. Yeah, again, if this was, I don't, I don't think this passes the law gospel text, and if somebody just gave this to me blind, not knowing it was Chrysostom or somebody else, I would say, yeah, you got to clean that up. You can't, you can't preach that. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my take. I'm trying to be as gentle there as possible. Um, but the impulse that I like there, the impulse that I like there is the recognition of husbands, you know, that with, with authority comes responsibility. You know, you have the headship. That also, with that also comes uh, a, a greater judgment in the sense that... Um, did you do for your wife and children what was your duty? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's part of it. And I think this is why Luther in the, in the small catechism, um, under the section of confession absolution, you know, what, what, what sins should I confess? He says, consider your place in life, your station in life, your vocation, according to the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is exactly the, how it would look for us as, as fathers, is you would consider your place in life. And, and here you can see how readily we have sins to confess then, right? Where we've, where we've lacked, where we haven't been disciplined with ourselves and thus not with our families, where we've maybe been overly harsh in such a way that it does damage to them and to their progress. You know, these, all these kinds of uh, considerations we can have and confessions we can make. Uh, but it is important for us to realize that, you know, I think... In America, we get so individualized, it's sort of like, like we just go up to heaven and it would just be like my own personal sins, my own personal judgments. If I were completely disconnected from everyone else and everything else and had no vocations, it's like, no, <laughs> no. I mean, whatever, whatever sins are, are just you are, are probably a rather small slice of the pie uh, relative to all the vocational duties and responsibilities, our stations in life being weighed and judged according to the Ten Commandments. And, and here you can see, I mean, how no one can be saved by their own righteousness. We have to have a righteousness apart from the law. We have to have a righteousness apart from the fulfilling of our vocations. Otherwise, no one can be saved. And in this way, the, the law definitely closes every, every mouth. No man can be justified by it. 
we are justified by Christ. We have his righteousness given to us by pure grace. What then, what then do we do with these vocations? Nah, just throw them out. Let's live however we want to live like swine. No! I mean, no. <laughs> we've, been, we've been saved from our sins, not saved from our vocations. Uh, so so there, that's what I was talking about a moment ago. And I said, that, that salvation, that grace, that forgiveness of sins is precisely what empowers us to re-embrace these things and say, yeah, sinner though I am, failure though I am, this is the Lord's way. Let me, uh, let me rejoice in it. Let me strive to accomplish it um, where I always and inevitably fall short. Let me confess it. And, and this way our sins beautifully bind us to Christ. You know, and what we work for evil, he works for good because all our failures end up just attaching us all the more to him. And this is God's wisdom and providence. Okay, yes, if you can still remember. I'm sorry for the lengthy delay. No problem. On my life, I have considered the order of God to be, uh, and I know referencing what's going on in our society mm-hmm. with the headship of the husband. All my life, I've seen that with my father's adventure in uh, his marriage with my mother. And then it's, it's to be a sorting through yeah. To be um, making making peace with what's the bigger society, the media mm, mm. is trying to project on their um, presentation of themselves as husbands, as dads. Yeah. I speak to that. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I, sure. I just I just love it. I just say, in my viewpoint, God is a God of order. Mm-hmm. And yeah. This brings order to the family, where the father is uh, attentive to his responsibilities, and and the wives concede, and not in not in um, well, I don't know. There's a word for me that's missing in my brain right now, but I just I just see a negotiation mm-hmm. in these two marriages that is good. I'll leave it at that. Okay, great. Well, yeah, so maybe two comments on that. And for those of you, you know, listening or watching online, the gist of the question um, is, is just wrestling through how this relates kind of positively and negatively, um, how the biblical teaching relates with everything that's going on in our society and, um, you know, sort of the woke movement, so-called. Uh, on the one hand, you can see what a lawless age we live in. And... Um, you can see how, how the order that God has put in place for the foundation of society, the, the husband and wife, the family that comes from that, the family as a unit, the headship of the male, um, the, the economics of it all. I mean, everything is wrapped in together in, in such a way that is thoroughly lawless and intended to destroy this, not to uphold this. So, so Christians, you know, wanting to live this way in their homes are doing something completely countercultural. Males that actually want to be heads are more than likely going to do so with their wives and children against them. Because all of society is teaching them that this isn't what males are supposed to do. That dad's a dinosaur. Right? A wife, 
a wife who wants to submit to her husband is going to do so not only against all of society but against her own internal conditioning and the entire time she's going to be thinking I'm betraying myself I'm betraying femininity I'm betraying it because why because we have all swam and drank these waters of feminism without even realizing it and I'm talking here extreme feminism that it you know the kind of the kind of aberrations you have like uh, a woman isn't a woman unless she's a man <laughs> this kind of insanity right um, you know, true, true Christian feminism says let's define what woman is and let's advocate for that. Let's advocate for what um, organic and social roles God has given her and let's say, let, let's say that that's what female is. Let's define it in God's terms and advocate for that. So yeah, a woman who wants to submit to her husband is going to do so probably against, her, you know, against um, much internal conditioning as well as uh, media and friends and everyone else in society saying otherwise. Um, children who want to be obedient to their parents are going are gonna to find themselves increasingly encouraged and empowered by teachers and the state not to, to resist the patriarchy. <laughs> you know, when that's the guy who's got the roof over your head and the food on your plate and everything else, um, that guy. Yeah, so, so this is a really countercultural thing, and we're fighting against society. Now, that's sort of like point one. Point two, I'll make really short, if, if I can. Point two is that while we want to be absolutely rigid and warlike against these impulses in our culture, we also want to have profound compassion for people who have been wrapped up in this. Because this is, we're like fish in water. And this is, this is the water we're all swimming in, right? We are, we are all, you cannot help but drink some of it in. You cannot help but have some of it affect you. So to sort of like bash one another, especially those of us who are, who are Christians and trying to live and do the right thing, but we're making mistakes, um, or, or um, people who are completely secularized, and it's just... This is, ever since I was a kid, this is what people told me. This is what my teachers taught me. This is what... Uh, you know, Sesame Street and the Disney Channel put inside of me. And, and this is what all of, all of culture and all the companies and brands I enjoy tell me. And so I've lived this way and it's, and it's made an utter shipwreck of my soul and my life. What a mistake it would be for us as, as a church, as a people of God to say, well, you reap what you sow, you know. I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a time to be, uh, it's such a paradoxical time. As I said, to be completely warlike against these attitudes and ideas in the culture, and yet to be um, completely gentle, patient, forgiving, and gracious towards those who have been victimized by these things. I mean, even as they've perpetuated them, they've been victimized by them. And if someone starts to come to the realization that I've been victimized by all of this, um, we, and, we, and, and even if they can't extricate themselves from all of that necessarily, but they, they, they're repentant and they want to do better, uh, we ought to pronounce absolution and embrace them. And we ought to recognize that in the body of Christ, too. That, like, we're not. Sorry, Israel doesn't get, doesn't, or I mean, Judah doesn't get hauled off to Babylon without being influenced by Babylonian culture. You know, we, we don't get to exist here as a church in progressive America without being influenced by that. So we may as well fight where we can fight, encourage where we can encourage, be gracious where we can be gracious, and. Um, have an extra dose of mercy towards those that are, you know, chewed up by this thing. 
Yeah, which in some respect is all of us. <laughs> and it's 40 years of the trip. Okay. You don't realize that you're a Russian spy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, Barry. I mean, when we're, we're going to look at the foundations, which we should, there's so much clarity to do that. What is the foundation of all marital strife? The fall into sin and, and the curse um, that we've rightfully, you know, that we've rightfully merited and brought upon ourselves. Uh, we don't wag a finger at God on this one. But yeah, we should, we should enter marriage realizing that marriage isn't going to be perfect. I... If I frankly think it behooves us to just be very honest about the statistics and look at marriage and say the statistics are, I think now you have a greater chance of being divorced than remaining married. Um, I think it's over 50%. Uh, I, know, I know in Orange County it's more than 50%. Um, and by the way, the vast, vast majority of those are initiated by the women. I'm just going to have that sip of coffee there. Uh, it, it's indicative of a huge societal problem we've got, um, a huge societal problem we've got, where, uh, well, I won't go into it. Um, I have elsewhere. But yeah, so to look at the foundations, Barry, and have our assumptions being, I'm going to go into marriage, and it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult. I, uh, the only thing we want to be careful there, and I think sometimes embittered Christians, you know, have lived through painful marriages or been divorced, and they'll just tell young people, we'll never get married. You know, our marriage is terrible. Well, that's okay. That's just, you know, that's the opposite error. Marriage is a good and wonderful gift of God. It just happens to hurt a lot. And it happens to be God, one of God's primary modes and means of sanctifying us. You know, that's the fact. And so is it good? Yes. Does it hurt? Yes. Does it hurt precisely because we need it to hurt? Yes. I mean, what does marriage teach you? Like right out the gate before you even have children, selflessness. Hey, there's this other human being involved, right? That just right out the gate. And then children come along. And then that like the selflessness factor just explodes. And it's like, boy, if you ever wanted to be a monk, just, you know, get... Get married. Your prayer sessions don't happen when some old guy with a giant scruffy beard rings a bell. That you know, it's when your kiddo cries out in the middle of the night. You're up whether you like it or not. So yeah, that's. Um, I think that that's why people hate marriage, uh, in our in our culture and our societies because it hurts and they want an easy divorce and they just want to move and, and as soon as this starts hurting, I'm out, because I, I'm not going to have my selfishness threatened here. I'm not going to have my happiness taken away from me. And then this same impulse is why people increasingly don't want kids. Or truth be told, even though it hurts, want fewer and fewer kids. Because kids hurt. They hurt the wallet. They hurt the time. 
Sometimes they hurt the marriage, uh, truth be told. Um, they, they, they hurt everything. Why? Because they're a demand to be less selfish, which is not what we want. So we don't want kids in our society. We want less kids in our society. And to start to realize these things and then to start to realize how God uses the vocations and intends the vocations um, as a blessing in and of themselves, yes, but also as a means by which to bring greater and everlasting blessings. Now we're starting to get at it. We're starting to get at why it hurts. It hurts so good. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, thank you for that. I, and I maybe just, you know, for, for, I, I'd hate to try to restate that, but yeah. hopefully I can encapsulate that in what I'll say for the for the online folks and that's um, the the there's this universal principle and we've talked about it in here that really in one way puts a ceiling on all human authority and that is the word of God. If you're if you're if you're father or mother, if you're husband or wife, if you're boss or employer, if you're uh, president or king, if you're pastor or bishop or district president or whoever he is, tells you to do something other than God's word, you know, commands you to do something that God's word forbids, forbids you to do something that God's word commands, you must not obey. So, so what is the ultimate authority? In, for all of us in all vocations. It's the Word of God. If the Word of God doesn't clearly speak, then what's left? Well, they may be important things, but they are adiaphora-esque things, indifferent things, that is, things neither commanded nor forbidden. And there's lots of room for that, and I'm not saying it's unimportant. It's very important, you know. Um, But you have to realize then that the levels and layers of authority we have are largely about these indifferent things. And in this respect, then, what is it to submit to authority? But it's, it's precisely like God's way of teaching us humility. And so, yeah, even the husband who's the head of the wife and the head of the family has Christ as his head and is submissive to Christ. And... Is, is in turn submissive to the civil authorities or the ecclesiastical authorities, and they have their own levels and layers of submission. In other words, there's not a single person on earth who isn't submissive to another human being in some way, shape, or form. God simply will not have it otherwise. And that's what I mean when you look at this whole mechanism. Where, wherever you may be in this big map, you are, you are in submission to someone else's authority. I am as a pastor. I am as a, as a father. I am as a husband. Um, so with that being said, then, this is really overplayed, this, well, you know, and, and ruined by the husbands that abuse this. You know, I'm, I'm a dictator. I've got all the authority. Nobody else has any authority. I mean, n- not only is that abusive, but it's just flat wrong. A husband's not a dictator. 
and, and he himself is under authority and everybody else is under authority. So anyway, when viewed from this angle, like we just have to get over it. Every last one of us is answerable to someone um, and that someone is a human. So yeah. So then you can see God's design that it's, it's intended to humble us. And, yeah. Okay, well, that's that. So um, any other thoughts we have uh, there on parents and children? Yes? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Moses, Moses taking care of the Israelites. He's getting squabbled at all the time. Yeah, yeah, and people are attacking him all the time. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's kind of the nature of, of having authority, too. If, you're the, if, you, if you have authority, then you bear the responsibility. And you very frequently bear the accusations uh, when things go south. And that's true in the household. It's true in the government. It's true in the church. It's true in all of these paradigms, yeah. And that's where, too, just to bring, it, to bring it round once more to this idea. Um, you know, to be in, um, a, in a leadership or authority position, you have to have thick skin. Um, and you have, to, you have to realize that I'm not here to execute my own will, but God's will. Because that's the only place you're going to find any peace or any comfort. You know, you're going to say, I am, you know fail or succeed, my goal is that God's will would be done. Yeah. And that, that will, according to his word, that that would be done. And let the chips fall where they may and take what insults you have to. But um, with that as your, and that takes us back to this idea of duty. You know, that a, that a husband or a wife, um, a father, a mother, children, employer, employee, if we look at our vocations in terms of duty and duty rendered unto God, you know, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then do this to these, right? If we think of our vocations in that way, it, it, it unmuddies a lot of this. And it takes out so many of the psychological and interpersonal dynamics. And it's just like, here's what God would have me do. That's what I'm going to execute and do. And uh, yeah, I'm going to fail and fall short because of the weakness of my flesh. I'm going to repent of that and be forgiven. But still, this is the job description. You know, I don't, and the beautiful thing about this, I don't really care if you criticize me. It's prob uh, probably I deserve worse, uh, <laughs> but this is the job I have to do. I'm going to do it. Yeah, and doing that job is probably going to bring a lot of heat on you, but that's, that's vocation. And again, what's, what's at the center of all of this? Christ. If you, if you plumb the depths of this, Christ is the one who does his duty unto God and unto neighbor perfectly. Not only his entire life, but climaxing at the cross itself, so that if the very place you go for your forgiveness you're going to see Christ doing it in your stead for you and his, his righteousness being credited to you, of course. But you're going to see him also as the model and template. Like, this is, this is what it looks like to be capital M man. This is what it looks like to be fully human. I love this theology that comes from the early church fathers, that we're all not even human yet. We're, we'll be human in the resurrection. <laughs> we're, right now, we're learning to be human. Christ is the true and only human. I love that. I love that. All right, that brings, uh, that brings a close here to homily 21. Um, we've got 10 minutes left. We may as well get a little ways into homily 12. It kind of begins with a tangential in introduction anyway. Would someone be so kind as to uh, maybe turn the furnace um, to pause?
uh, or just if you if you turn that switch, it will uh, maybe stop barbecuing me. Um, yes, if you turn it to the off position. It is off. Okay, that one is off. Oh dear. Uh, yeah, may as well. Can't hurt. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. There it goes. Thank you. Sorry to those of you who may be uh, a little cold. Okay, so homily 12 on Colossians 4.18. Now, 4.18, you can see that that's just one verse, and that verse is here for us, so there's no need to open our Bibles. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. This is awesome. I've always wanted to preach a sermon on a text just like this, and I, I hope to get the chance, but I'll get to learn here from Chrysostom. So, he writes, Paul concludes his epistle to the Colossians with these words so that they will not be afraid for him. He tells them that even though he, their teacher, is in chains, his soul is free through grace. Even his imprisonment is an act of grace. Ooh, there's two big ideas right there. And we, ideas we've already talked about, so I don't want to belabor them, but um, the idea that one can be completely bound physically and be utterly free, while those who are utterly free physically are completely bound. Maybe I'll preach on this some when we get close to the passion and chaining Christ and how he's utterly free even when he's in chains. Those who are free in chaining him are utterly bound. Okay, And then the next point, even his imprisonment is an act of grace. Now this is, this is starting like, this is what it is like to get to full maturity in, in some sense, is to realize that all things come from the hand of God. All things come from the hand of God. Uh, Jesus teaches us this in his passion. Remember when he is with um, Pilate? Pilate says something to the effect, I may, be, I may be off on this by a touch, but he says something to the effect of, do you not know that I have the power to release you or the power to punish you? And, um, and again, here my paraphrase may be off, but not so much the, the content. But do you remember how Christ also says to him, um, he who betrayed me or he who handed me over to you has the greater sin. I simply point that out by way of tangent because it, it is always an ever popular and really messed up Lutheran circles to talk about all sins as if they were all equal. When, I mean, they're all equally damning. It's about the only way in which they're equal. And here's a proof text where Jesus says the greater sin belongs to Judas, not Pilate. But then he says to Pilate, and this is more to the point, you have no authority except that which has been given to you. Which is such a profound statement. An entire sermon, I think an entire book could be written on that statement alone. But... Um, but to simplify for our purposes, he isn't receiving this from the hand of Pilate. He's receiving this from the hand of God. The authority that Pilate exercises is authority that comes from God. And I think Jesus here is teaching us very, very profound theology of suffering. Very, very profound theology of what is sometimes called providence, or even in the secular sphere, fate or determinism. Just that the world works the way it does and God is behind it. Can you trust him? Your life has come to this point. Can you trust him? And in, and in Christ, it's all the more poignant. Here he is 
utterly innocent, utterly sinless. Not only is he not guilty of the charges that have been brought against him, he's not guilty of anything at all. And here he is in this kangaroo court being tried as a sinner by a sinner and yet submitting himself to it and doing so joyfully and with a good conscience because he knows that this too is the grace of God. This too is the providence of God. And I think that this is such a beautiful, beautiful way of uh, fleshing out here Chrysostom's statement, this, this other very profound statement, even his imprisonment is an act of grace. This is behind the, the biblical enjoiners to uh, count it all blessing, count it all joy when we fall into various trials and tribulations, realizing what they produce in us, realizing from whose hand they come. Again, we're sort of like fish in this giant fish tank. And sometimes God gives good things from our perspective and sometimes bad things. Faith grasps hold of this and says, it's all for my good. Okay. Even his imprisonment, Chrysostom continues in reference to Paul, even his imprisonment is an act of grace. Listen to what Luke says in the Acts of the Apostles. The apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. If a man willingly suffers for his wife whom he loves, how much more willingly should we suffer for Christ? So never be distressed about the tribulations you endure for Christ's sake. Remember, Paul's bonds, and you will be encouraged. Yeah, or remember our Lord himself, you know, and what he suffered for being righteous, and Paul suffering for being righteous, and so this is great. Remember Paul's bonds, and you will be encouraged. Are you proud of your good deeds? Remember Paul's bonds, and you will see how unreasonable it is for you to be surrounded with pleasures while his life was continually endangered. Does your heart crave self-indulgence? Think of Paul in prison. You are his disciple, his fellow soldier. How can you want to live in luxury while your fellow soldier is in chains? Has everyone in this world forsaken you? Remember Paul in prison and understand that to be alone is not to be forsaken. Do you delight in expensive clothes or golden jewelry? Remember Paul's bonds, and these things will seem to you as more worthless than a prostitute's filthy rags or a handful of withered grass. Do you spend long hours adorning your hair and painting your face with cosmetics, hoping to make yourself beautiful? Think of Paul's squalor in prison, and you will burn with desire for his beauty. You will then consider worldly beauty to be ugly, and will bitterly long to share Paul's chains. Think of his face streaming with tears. Day and night for three years he never ceased his weeping. Uh, reference to Acts 20. Imitate his weeping. Make your face bright with tears. Weep for your sins your anger, your loss of self-control, your love of revelry. Imitate Paul's tears, and you will laugh to scorn the vanities of this passing life. Christ blessed these tears when he said, Blessed are you that weep now, for you shall laugh. So there is an application of uh, Luke 6, 21. 
a beatitude of Christ, applied directly to St. Paul. Nothing is sweeter than these tears. They are more to be desired than any laughter. Pray earnestly for these tears, so that when others sin, your heart may be broken for them. Raise your sons and daughters in the same way. Weep for them when you see them led astray. Remember the psalmist's words, The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord accepts my prayer. And that's Psalm 6. So a very nice introduction and opening treatment here of, uh, again, maybe just a sermon in some respects on you cannot serve God and mammon. And uh, you see that borne out in the life of Christ. You see that borne out in the life of Paul. And there's great encouragement then for us to aspire to these same attitudes into this same life, and then also in our vocations as, as husband and wife, as uh, parents and children, to uh, bring these, these same spiritual attitudes uh, into our vocations. And again, what the world scorns, we embrace, and what the world embraces, we scorn. So there's a great difference here between Christianity and the world. All right, next week we will pick up on page 74 with that paragraph, Remember My Bonds, and we'll get into marriage a bit. The Lord be with you.